tonight's Bible reading comes from Hebrews um, chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand... Sorry, we do have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and it was so necessary for this one to also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in the fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and, he, and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come and we look at this passage of Scripture tonight, we ask that you might uh, encourage us. Encourage us in the new covenant that we participate in because of Christ Jesus our Lord. That with Him, seated at your right hand, our advocate, our high priest, because of what He has offered to you, we're yours. Because of what we remembered tonight as we've thought about his broken body and his shed blood, we have this opportunity to be your people in a, a brand new way. And we thank you for that and we ask that it might encourage us in our faith. Make us alive as your people and take us out into the new week filled by your Spirit to do your work. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every now and then, 
particularly if, if a preacher tends to wander a little bit or he's talking about something, or, you know, he rabbits on a bit, um, people can sometimes lose track of exactly what it is the preacher wants to say. So every now and then he's kind of got to bring everybody back and focus them and say, this is what I'm talking about. And pretty much that's what happens here at the start of chapter 8. The preacher, the writer of the book of Hebrews, wants to draw all the people back and say, just in case you haven't been paying much attention. Of course, I know this wouldn't be true of you. But, or in case you've forgotten what happened in the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews, he says, I just want to focus you right back in again so that you can get your minds in the right spot. And so he starts off and he says, now the, mo- the main point of what we are saying is this. This is what he wants to get to. This is where he's going. We do have such a high priest. And Daryl talked last week about the fact that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's, he's a better priest than the priests from Aaron's line. Not only that, the right of the Hebrews here brings back everything, all the way back from Hebrews chapter 1. And all of the, the what he's been talking about, about Jesus being greater than Moses, being greater than angels, he's a son, he's a priest. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he says, this is the main point, we have such a person in Christ Jesus. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and he now serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by a mere human being he said our high priest is in heaven now what he brings up here about the tabernacle is going to carry on in chapter 9 so I'm not going to spend too much time about that at all All he's going to compare what was happening in the old tabernacle and what what Christ has done. So we're not going to touch too much on it, but he wants us to realize we have Jesus. That everything he's talked about relates to Christ and it's what we need to have firmly fixed in our minds. He, He then brings up a topic that he's going to talk about in the rest of the next couple of chapters. So again, I'm just going to read it out to you and just make a couple of brief comments. But he wants to then take this idea that we have Christ Jesus as our high priest and develop it to, if you like, encourage us, to give us more of the motivation as to what he wants as the people of God for us to know. Verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. Now in chapter 9 he's going to talk about a comparison between the gifts and the sacrifices that the priest did in the tabernacle and temple. But he's already given us a hint. In chapter 7, he said that Christ offered up himself. And when he's finished that conversation in chapter 10, he's going to talk about the offering of Christ's own blood. In other words, what he's talking about here is that we have a high priest who has not only offered things which have to be repeated and are of inferior value, but our high priest has offered up himself. He shed his blood. That, that wonderful, precious thing we've just remembered. And that his gift is much greater than their gifts. Be developed in a couple of weeks' time. Because he wants to get to the end of this chapter to encourage us with the new covenant that we've remembered tonight. Verse 4. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. 
for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. He's heading back to what he talked about, that Jesus is in heaven. You see, one of the things that was bothering, I think, the people to whom he was writing to is, how do we tie in, Daryl talked about this last week, how do we tie in what we were given with Moses and Jesus? And pretty much says, if Jesus was still on earth, then he would still be operating under that old same thing. And he wouldn't even be a priest. Because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not one of the children of Aaron. But he's not. He's in heaven. It's a, a much greater priesthood, and we talked about that last week. And the gifts that he's given are much greater. That's coming in the future. He thinks, that, picture this in your mind. Jesus is supreme, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and everything that he has done is magnificent. Verse 5. The priests, the gifts, the, the priests who offer things by the law, they serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. And this is the point he wants to get to. That the covenant that Jesus brings into place is higher than the covenant that was brought into place which the priests were operating under. The Mosaic covenant. And so he's talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than, the, than Moses. He's greater than the Aaronic priesthood. And he's going to talk about how there's a difference between where he serves and where they serve. And there's this little comment in there about there's a, a, that what we have here on earth is merely a shadow of what's in heaven. And he's going to talk about how that is so much greater. He refers back to how Moses was told, when you build the tabernacle, make sure you build it exactly as I've shown you. Because it's a copy an inferior copy of what's in heaven. And that's what has the great value. For those of you who are interested, just as a side, because I really like reading up about this sort of stuff, there's this debate that goes on whether or not this copy is a temporal copy, that means has to do with time, that one comes before the other. All right. In other words, what we have here is a shadow of what's coming in the future and we're looking forward forward to Christ and therefore everything we read about in the Old Testament is looking forward to Christ and what's true in heaven and there's an element of that in it. Or whether or not what we have here is an imperfect picture of what already exists in heaven. In other words, what Moses was asked to build was to build a copy, an inferior copy because he couldn't do the greatness of the glory of what was in heaven. And he would build a copy of it to show us something of what it was like. And people argue about that. And I think in the end it's both. In reality. It's both. There's this time difference. That one leads to the other and points to the other. And the other one is just a mere shadow and copy of it that we can begin to understand. But whatever it is there that he's talking about, his idea is this. 
what we have in Jesus is better. And he wants us to understand that everything that we've talked about about Hebrews and everything that he's talked about, we need to now focus back in and say we actually have Christ. This isn't airy-fairy philosophy. This isn't thinking about what may be or might be or could be or should be. This is talking about something that we have. This is the main point, he says. We do have this high priest. He's talking about Jesus and everything that he's offered. Then we get down, I suppose, to this, this main point. He wants to bring in this quotation from the book of Jeremiah. It's the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the whole of the New Testament. And he quotes it here and he quotes it at the end of chapter 10. There, if you like, bookends and the things that he's going to talk about in between hand relate back to this passage that he's talking about from the book of Jeremiah. It's fascinating that he puts, picks this passage from the book of Jeremiah because what he's trying to say from this passage is what he says at the bottom of verse 6. Right? But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. How do you prove a text if you're a good preacher? How do you prove a good text? How do you prove something if you're a good preacher? How do you, how do you, how do you make sure that everybody accepts it and believes it? It's not a rhetorical question. I want some answers. Back it up with Scripture. Absolutely. What's his Scripture? Old Testament. So he wants to prove to them that the new covenant is better than the old. And the problem is, he has to use the old covenant to prove that the new covenant is better than the old. He's got to pick something from the old covenant, a text from the old covenant, to prove that it is not as good as the new covenant. And that's why he picks this passage from Jeremiah. Because it's one of those passages in the, in, in the Old Testament, there's a number of others, but it's one of the most specific passages, where God says, there's going to be something better. There's a new covenant coming and it is better. And God promises in that looking forward to what is coming and he tells us what makes it better. And so the writer of the Hebrews here pulls us out and he shows it to us and he says, see, this is what Jesus has done. Now what I want to do for the rest of, of this sermon and looking through this chapter is to go through what promises there are in this passage from Jeremiah which are, make it better and, and what that means to us as God's people. What is better about what we have in Christ Jesus than in the Mosaic Covenant? A lot of people say, well, it's grace. Grace is better, right? Amen. But the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of grace, if you think about it. He had just taken these people out of Egypt and brought them out. He was, God was showing grace to the people all through that. So whilst grace is, is exemplified in Christ Jesus, God has been gracious through the whole of the Old Testament. It's not that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant lacked grace. If we, if we read what Jeremiah has to say 
God in this passage points out why the Old Covenant isn't as good as the New Covenant. Verse 7. For if there'd be nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In other words, there is something wrong with the first covenant. Verse 8. God found fault with the people. The problem with the Old Covenant, God says in the book of Jeremiah, is the people. Not the covenant, not the agreement, if you like. Not God. God was himself. He was holy, he was righteous, he was full of grace. The problem was the people. What happened? Well, the people couldn't keep their part of the covenant. That's what he says here in verses 9. In the days they come in, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the first covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, a covenant of grace, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned my back on them. The problem with the first covenant, and Paul goes into this in detail in Romans and a couple of other passages, he basically says we couldn't keep that. Nothing wrong with the law. But when it came up to this conditionality, you do this and I'll do this. If you obey my law, I will be your God. You'll be my people. The people couldn't keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of my experience still. If everything depended on how well I do as a Christian... And if the new covenant was based on that, it wouldn't be any more better than the old one, would it? Or is that only me? You know, week after week, preachers stand up here, and I'm one of them, who says, this is what you should do. You should be like this. Don't have lustful thoughts. Think holiness. Talk nicely to your parents. Right? Be forgiving. And we say, do this, do that, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that. And I go back and I have a look at my life and even doing the things that I say to do, I don't do the things that I say to do. Not that I'm, I'm not really wicked or anything. I'm not, you know, I'm not out there sinning grossly. But all sin is gross, really. But the very things that we know God wants, we still don't do. And that was the problem with the first covenant. Not God, not God's grace, but... The people didn't do it. And so the writer of Hebrews says, the difference here is the promises that God makes. And the promises are written on the front of your pew sheet so that you can have it in front of you. Stick it somewhere and have a look at them. And I'm just going to read the whole lot out and then we'll go through and talk about them. This, verse 10, is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, when the new covenant is put into place. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins 
no more. That is what he says is the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus because he offered himself up for us. I'm not really good at English, I'm really good at math, mathematics, science, physics, not very good at chemistry. But my understanding of English is there's nothing in there which is conditional on us. Is there? It's all the work of Christ. It's all what God does. I want to have a quick look at each of these promises and come to understand what a blessing that is for us. But it still has application. It still means we need to take it on board and live it. And we're going to go through each of them. It comes in couplets, if you like, so that we can do the first two and when I get to the next two it's going to seem fairly repetitious for a little bit, but that's always good preaching because people don't remember the first time you tell them anything. All right? So here we go. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What was the old covenant? The old covenant was written on stone. It was copied down on scrolls. People had to go back to it all the time. The problem was that there was no inner change, if you like, within them. What God promises in this covenant is that he writes his law in our minds and in our hearts. He changes, if you like, our very ability at times to do that. If we think about what the rest of the New Testament says, this is all tied up with the fact that God's Spirit comes and dwells within us. Don't think that there's a change in the character of God so that God's law is for some ways different. That's not what he's talking about. The requirements of living before a holy God haven't changed. But what's changed is it's no longer external to us. It's now within us. We now relate to God directly. He's written it within us. He's changed our heart of stone, turned it into a heart of flesh. He's put his spirit within us that he might guide us and strengthen us and empower us to live the sort of life that he wants us to live. I remember teaching um, a course in, in Sudan on First Timothy, I think it was. Might have been Second Timothy, First Timothy. We got to the passage where it talks about husbands loving your wives. And um, I said to them, how should you beat your wife? What's a good reason to beat your wife? And we came up with 50, 60, 70 reasons why you should beat your wife. I wrote them all up on the board. You should beat your wife because she burned your dinner. You should beat your wife because she's late home from Bible study. You should beat your wife because she cooks something she knows you don't like. You should beat your wife because she tells a lie. And there are a whole range of reasons why you should beat her. And then I said to someone, well, how should you beat your wife? These, these are all pastors, by the way, I just sort of encourage you. And they said, fists or sticks. And there was one older guy sitting down there I said, you haven't said anything yet. What's, what's, what's with you? 
いつもあなたは自分の子供を守ることができます。あなたは自分の子供を守ることができます。あなたは自分の子供を守ることができます。Wants me to love my wife. No one had to tell me. I just knew it was wrong. Now, does that mean the other people weren't Christians? Well, possibly. You should have heard some of the other things they said. But this is, this is the promise of God that He will write His law in our hearts and our minds. That we, both corporately and individually, Will know what God wants, what His law is. His Spirit will commune with our Spirit. His Spirit will guide us into all truth. We went、um, four wheel driving yesterday, and I was tired when I got home. and I texted Sylvia beforehand because we were supposed to go out last night to、um, a hymn singing time that we have every third Saturday. And I said, I think we're going to be late, and I'm pretty tired. She texted me back and said, Well, yeah, but you're giving devotions. So I got home and、uh, I had about half an hour and I sat down with my Bible in front of me and worked out some devotions. We were driving home last night after we'd sung the hymns and I'd given devotions. And Sylvia says to me, She says, Why did you choose that passage? Why did you choose to? Speak on the end of John chapter 3. You're not preaching on John? We have no Bible studies on John? Daryl's not preaching on John? Why'd you pick that? Not, not that it was bad, she was very cool, she said it's fine, but why'd you pick it? I found it hard to answer for a little while because I was a little bit sheepish. And I said, well, it probably just comes down to the mat that I sat down there and I said, Lord, what do you want me to speak on? What do you want me to say? And I just sat there and prayed to God, What do you want me to say? And the end of John chapter 3 comes to mind. So I pick it up and read it and say, Yeah, I've got a real piece to talk about that. So I get up and do it. But that's not abnormal. You see, God promises that He will write His law in our minds or in our hearts. He gives us His Spirit. It's an amazing promise. He then goes on to say, I will be their God. They will be my people. There's no conditionality there. There's, there's, there's no, if this happens, then this happens, or whatever else. It's the new covenant I'm going to write with my people. And if we look further on, it's written in the blood of Christ because of what Christ has done on the cross. And those who enter into that relationship with Him. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Now, the reformers talk about this in the sense of the perseverance of the saints, if you like. The fact that those whom are gods are gods. It's His work in their life, and He keeps them. His sheep hear His voice and come to Him, and then they're His. 
the book of Hebrews has got these warning passages all the way through it, but it's not saying if you do this or don't do this, you will be cast out. What it says is you can tell the people who are his because they persevere. They stay. And this is an encouragement to us because like I said beforehand, if it was up to what I did, I fail. You don't like to hear that the pastors fail sometimes? Just watch it. We fail. The elders fail. Youth leaders fail. Parents fail. Kids fail. If it was up to us to determine by our life whether or not we were going to belong to God and he would be our God and we would be his people, wouldn't happen. It'd be just like the old covenant. But no, God lives within us. His law is written on our hearts and our minds. And we're his. And he's ours. And this is his promise for us. Verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how much Bible learning you've got doesn't matter what your title is. You don't have to have other people lead you to God and introduce you to God and show you what God wants of your life. We're called upon to encourage and equip one another to help one another along the pathway because this is a journey we're on together as the people of God. That's true. But each of us knows God. We're in this personal relationship with God. One of the funny things about coming to Sunnybank District Baptist Church has been the title that I've been given, Pastor David. Now, keep it, it's fine, I don't mind. Nice, respectful thing. But sometimes it's said as if it's not a task that I have to be a pastor, but it's a position and a title as if it sets apart the respect appropriate scripturally for those who are in the task of shepherding but as a title as being set apart and different this passage is saying it's not appropriate it's what Jesus says don't call anyone father you only have one father You don't need anybody else to bring you to God. You don't need anybody else to point you on that pathway to have that relationship with God. You and God like this. You don't need anybody else. Why? Because everyone who's a child of God knows We're in that relationship with him. This is what he promises. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, verse 12. Why? Why is all this possible? Why can I put my law in their minds and their hearts? Why can I guarantee that I'm their God and they're my people? Why is it that they can know me personally without any need for anyone else to lead them. Why? Because I will forgive their wickedness 
and will remember their sins no more. That which in the past has always meant that they've broken a covenant. I'm going to deal with that. Once and for all, their sin is dealt with. And that's what we have in Christ Jesus. Our sin dealt with. Now, for, for those of you who have not yet come to Christ Jesus, this is an amazing promise. All the things that have separated you from God can be dealt with in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done, murder, lying, cheating, abusing others, I don't know, anything you say is bad, isn't it? Gluttony, gossiping. I think of the worst thing you've done, God can deal with that in Christ Jesus. It's dealt with. There's nothing comes between you and him. So if you've not yet entered into a relationship with God, this is a promise that says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it's also a promise for those of us who are Christians. Sometimes when I talk to Christian folk, they live in the sins of their past. They kind of don't yet accept the fact that they're children of God and that he has dealt with that. And people come and say, but I've done this. And Jesus said, I remember it no more. I'm merciful. I forgive it. No matter what it is. That doesn't mean that all the consequences of our sin suddenly disappear we've been unfaithful with our husband or wife and we've got someone else pregnant the baby just doesn't go it's like a baby but God forgives our sin it doesn't separate us from him the consequences are unlasting we still have relationships that are broken and need to be fixing up all the time but our relationship with God is dealt with in Christ Jesus we come to him in repentance and he forgives We don't have to keep going back and saying we've got this thing between God and me, God and me. It's dealt with. Sometimes when I talk with Christian people, I wonder, don't you believe God? They come back and say, you know, I did this. I sometimes wonder whether or not they come back and they're they're repenting the thing for the tenth time. And they're saying, God, I did it, I did it. And he goes, did what? I forgot. What are you talking about? Remind me. Now, I'm not dumb enough to think that God's got this sort of ability to take neurons out. He's got neurons. So he doesn't actually remember. But he said, I'm not holding it against you. I will not hold it against you because of what Christ has done. This is what the new covenant promises us. That though we sin and though we continue to sin, we can be assured that in Christ Jesus we're forgiven. Because it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on God. And he's accepted this high priest who's sitting at his right hand in the position of power, sitting down in a finished work. What he has offered up has been acceptable. And therefore God makes this new covenant with us. Now I think those promises are amazing. They're supposed to be life-changing promises 
in the covenant. So how can it change your week? And I want to finish on this. How can these promises change your week? Number one, God's law is in your mind, he's written it on your heart. Listen to God. It's there. Yes, we read his word. His character hasn't changed. We need to go back. But God's spirit dwells within us to show us how we should live. He gives us peace for how to live the life. I don't know if you've ever been doing that thing and you know it's wrong almost immediately without praying about it, without reading a special scripture. You know, you just smack someone and your brain says, Christians don't do that. Well, Christians don't do that. And what we understand is that God forgives and so we have to deal with it straight away. God's law is written in our heart. We need to listen to that. We don't need someone else to come and tell us. We know. Deal with it straight away. When we lack the peace to keep moving, don't just keep doing it anyway. You know you're walking down a pathway and there's temptation up the end and you're thinking... I'm a little bit hesitant to go down here, but what would God want me to do? I'm a little bit hesitant. A little bit further. (laughs) Duh. God's written his law in your heart. He's he's given his spirit within you. He guides you. He, He leads you. He puts you within a family, yes, to help along the way. But listen to what he does, because he's written his law in your mind and your heart. And he promises that as his people, you will know what it is that he wants you to do. His Spirit will guide you as you come to the Scriptures to understand it. But even more than that, He'll give you a peace to continue in a pathway or not. And pretty much what He's saying is, listen to this. Ignorance is no excuse. Because if we live in communion with the one that we know, He promises that He will guide us into all truth. He's our God and we will be His people. This is a promise no matter what we've done in the coming week, what we've done in the past. Understand, in this, I think it's very liberating. That doesn't change. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your relationship with God is the same. He's your God and you're his person. He's forgiven you. Move on with him. Understand that you personally can know the Lord. You personally can know the Lord. In the coming week, this is the promise of the covenant that we have in Christ Jesus that we've celebrated tonight. That you don't need anyone else there to commune with God. We are called upon to get together as family and encourage and equip one another. That's true. But don't think that you're not special to God. When you're on your own, you're in a situation and you need God's guidance, you need God's help, you need God's assurance, you need God's comfort. He's there for you. You don't have to go rushing off asking somebody else. He's there for you. He knows you intimately. There's no great or least he says everybody has that relationship with him and then lastly know for certainty that there is absolutely nothing absolutely nothing 
that God not can't forgive, but if you're one of his people, hasn't forgiven. He still wants us to recognise the things that we've done wrong and to have a change in the way that we behave and to recognise it before him in confession. But it's not that when we do that we're forgiven. In Christ Jesus we're forgiven. Our sin, past, present, future, is dealt with. God will be merciful to us. And if you're living on the guilt of a past, then pretty much what it means is you haven't accepted the promises of God, which is that in Christ Jesus you're forgiven. Now that should be a, as this world says, a liberating experience if you're living in that sort of way. To know that you can go on with God and you, nothing come between you because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he's not going to bring it back up tapped you on the shoulder and said, you said you wouldn't do that again. You know people who do that? I do that with my kids. I shouldn't. Sorry, guys. I tell them I forgive them. Um, Yeah, yeah, I know you said you wouldn't do the dishes and yeah, I forgive you. The next time they don't do the dishes, what do I say? (laughs) You told me last time that that was the last time you were going to do that. And that was just three days ago. And they say, hey, you forgave us. I didn't. Now you want me to do it again. God's not like that. God doesn't hold it against us. He keeps working in our lives from within to change us into the image of Christ. We're set free. Verse 13, which is the end, pretty much says that the old covenant, the way where people were in this conditional relationship with God, that's obsolete and what is obsolete and is outdated will disappear and a little bit after this was written the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the sacrificial system disappeared I suppose what concerns me the most and I think it's concerned Christians throughout history is that for some strange reason we as Christian people keep wanting to drag that old system back out again and reuse it. We want to keep putting our actions as being determining our relationship with God instead of Christ's actions. I suppose what the writer is saying and what I'm encouraging you to do in this coming week, if that's you, if you're in the state where you keep bringing out what you do and what you've done, as being the determiner of your relationship with God, then get over it. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Why? Because we have that high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who has offered up himself, his blood for us, and we stand clean before him. And it's in that freedom that we are called upon to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. As we have prayed before, thank you for Christ. His shed blood, his broken body, the new covenant that he gave in his blood that we might be in this amazing personal relationship with you. 
Father, I pray that each of us in this coming week might revel in the freedom that we have in Christ because he has done everything for us. Help us to listen to your spirit who lives within us that we might be guided into all truth. Thank you that you change us from the inside out. That we don't live according to something that's external but to someone who's internal. Father, help us to, with open arms and clear minds, accept the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing our final song.
I think the guys are going to run that uh, the Mops Ministry uh, ad as well. <laughs> 